0: Hey, it's Andrew, the Director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature two virtual events from the 2021 Portland Book Festival with very different subjects that take place nearly a 1,000 years apart, but that both feature powerful female protagonists and heroes changing their worlds. In the first half of our show, We feature Julia Cook, author of Come Fly the World, the jet-age story of the women of Pan Am. She's in conversation with Amy Wong from The Oregonian. This particular evening of festival events was themed Hidden Worlds, and in Cook's book, she takes us behind the scenes of one of the most important global enterprises of its day, Pan Am, the first modern-day international airline. Between 1996 and 1975, the airline and the women who staffed their flights played a crucial role in international affairs, especially in America's role in Vietnam, far beyond what is commonly understood. Here's Julia Cook in conversation with Amy Wong from The Oregonian.
1: Hi, Julia. Hi, it's so good to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thanks for joining us. Reading your book was uh, a perspective altering experience. I will say that I will never look at the folks who work on a plane the same way again. This is a book that introduced us to the women of Pan Am, and reading your book was like stepping into a different world, a world in which women were seizing opportunities to travel the globe and live on their own at a time when that was harder to do. What, so what inspired you to write this book?
2: So my dad worked for Pan Am until I was about nine years old, but I really honestly had not thought a ton about um, the airline until I was uh, living in New York, working as a travel writer and a journalist. And I saw that the TWA hotel, which was not yet a hotel, it was still then a terminal, it um, had been shuttered for a long time. It was only open on invitation. And I always wanted to tour it. And it's just kind of a nostalgia jet cap- capsule of another time, uh, beautiful architecture. So I went to this event. And I wound up meeting two foreign students. I'm using the term um, intentionally. They me when I called them flight attendants they told mm-hmm. me that that was not historically accurate for their experience since they had only flown in the 60s when the term was do this um, I met these two women and I spent the whole afternoon with them and I found them incredible they were so authoritative um, they were really smart and interesting and sophisticated and it was really the texture that they talked about both events of geopolitical history and um, you know adventuring in the world they talked about shopping and really profound events of diplomacy and history with um, the same level of real intimacy and I found it incredibly big
1: So you use uh, four stewardesses basically as our entree into the world telling their experiences on Pan Am. How did you find these four women and how did you decide to tell their stories?
2: So I met those two women initially, and I just began to go to events with, that these women were were, were having. Um, uh, the, the crew of former stewardesses is, is incredibly, it's a, a really strong network. They stay in really good touch. They spent um, a lot of time together when they were younger, obviously, and uh, their connections are very, very strong. They still travel together into their 80s today. Mm. Um, so they have these events. I just started going to them and talking to tons of people um, and they were really generous with their contacts, with their knowledge. They really wanted to tell me their stories, especially because I was not interested in hearing as much about celebrities, which there were plenty of celebrity stories. Um, there, I didn't really care as much about um, the the more salacious aspects of of the job, or the more glamorous ones. I really wanted to know about um, their experiences interacting with, um, again, these events of geopolitics and, mm-hmm. and the history of it. Um, And I found that they were really, really excited to be talking to me about these um, events that had meant so much to them, but which very few people had actually been engaged with um, in their lifetimes, that they they had not really been asked to talk about that as much.
1: I think one of my favorite parts of the book was when you speak about, or excuse me, when you write about Hazel and her experiences traveling to Russia, or I guess the Soviet Union at the time.
2: I found it fascinating. The idea that, that all around the US, everyone was in this panic over the Cold War. Um, and here she was asked to go to Moscow and then spend a week at a time on the ground there. Uh, her Her perspective on what the Soviet Union was, was radically different from that of anyone I'd ever talked to.
1: In a way, these women were going into what their experiences in this world that they were in, you know, Pan Am being an exclusively international airline, but also an American company. There's a lot of microcosms, as you mentioned. Um, You know, you can tell a story of sexual discrimination, sex discrimination, you can tell stories of racial discrimination, you can tell stories of women trying to climb the ladder. Um, All these threads wove their way into the story. How did you do the balancing act of addressing these bigger themes while also telling the personal stories?
2: It was tough to find a balance um, because as you're saying, uh, there are all of these different elements of. how they came to be who they were, how they were integrating the airline, um, their, the way that they were really pushing hard for women's rights. Um, and and on a more selfish level, the fact that they were really invested in their own experience in, in seeing who they were in these different places and in experiencing the world in a way that women were not really encouraged to do in that era at all. So that also really interested me. Um, I, I just wanted to, to really do justice to the diversity of the voices that I was um, talking
1: with. Well, speaking of diversity, there are some photos in the book and there was one that particularly caught my eye. It was a group of women who were going through the trainee program in 1969. And I had an expectation of, of what that photo would show. And the photo showed something very different from what I expected. It was not all white women. What was your reaction? And you delve into this in, in a little bit in the book as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, that was one of the many things that surprised me while I was doing this research. Um, on the one hand, Pan Am was really pretty revolutionary for its era in that it was one of the first airlines to really court women who looked very different from one another um, to, to, be a members of, to form its crew. Um, at the same time, it was still looking for women who were all very pretty according to um, a pretty stereotypically patriarchal white male perspective on, on what pretty was. So it wasn't really as um, revolutionary as it might seem. And yet I think it's really valid and interesting to put that into context for the moment, for the era, the moment that it happened in.
1: I wondered when I was looking at that photo and the others, uh, you know, how well were stewardesses slash flight attendants represented? How well are they represented in the Pan Am archives in general? Is there a lot about them or or are they kind of a side note? There's name? a ton about them.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the archives, um, are really, really well stocked actually. So I, I think I, I came to the conclusion that there are probably four or five different books to be written um, about Am former uh <laughs> I've just written, I think is a good first stab. Um, and I, I hope that other people will get down to the archives at the University of Miami. they are remarkable documents in there.
1: Well, at its peak, I imagine so, because at its peak, Pan Am was flying to, I looked it up, 86 countries. So, you know, there's a lot of stories to tell. Were there any stories that you left out that you really wish you could have wedged into the book somehow?
2: There were a bunch of them, yeah. Um, One of the things that I found really, really compelling was um, I spent some time talking to uh, a couple who had lived in Saigon running Pan Am's um, Vietnam War Air business. Um, in the late '60s, and their experiences living in Saigon and, and, and running that kind of a business were just incredible. Um, but I was I was much more interested in, in the the steward the flight crews. Um, so I had to leave a, a lot of that information out.
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned Saigon because a good part part of the book is devoted to the experiences of stewardesses on flights that Pan Am was uh, flying to and from Vietnam, both for soldiers who were coming and going on tours of duty and on R&R leave. And one thing really jumped out, which is that some of the stewardesses identified as veterans themselves. Can you talk about what it was like to uh, interview these women about their Vietnam experiences?
2: It was incredible to be interviewing them about those experiences. You know, uh, one question that I've gotten a bunch um, as I've been talking about this book is, "What what surprised me the most as I was interviewing these women and doing this research?" And to be honest, the fact of their profound involvement in um, the Vietnam War was a, a shock to me. It came as such a huge surprise. Um, these were women who I talked to women who had come under fire, who had observed bombings from the air of, of um, civilian encampments below. I talked to women who had talked down um, soldiers undergoing uh, heroin withdrawal in the air from trying to jump out of an airplane. Um, violent men dealt with um, you know, profound loss. Um, so it, it really, it was, it was striking to me. Um, and what was even more striking was again, the fact that a lot of these women um, told me that I was the first person to really ask in detail um, about these experiences. So uh, that, that, that I found um, really startling.
1: And then the corollary to that too was uh, the involvement in the baby lift, the so-called Operation Baby Lift that followed the war in which um, orphaned children, sometimes not really orphaned children it turns out, were brought to this country.
2: Yeah, um, again, they were the, the, the women who had crewed these flights, um, it was a profound experience for them. Um, Operation Babylift was an incredibly controversial uh, undertaking. It was pitched as and, and really seen as being this incredibly important and um, exclusively uh, philanthropic, uh, generous undertaking to, to bring orphaned children with confirmed adoptive families in the US um, to the US. Uh, and that's not at all how it played out. It was very, um, well, it was a controversial event that I, I go into much more detail in the book itself. Uh, but the fact was that, that, that the women who were crewing these planes had become a part of it um, completely unwittingly. They, they were reassigned. Um, their flight was, their, their route was, was shifted in, in transit and um, they, they, they rose to the challenge.
1: And if I understand correctly, you mentioned in the book that this was because Pan Am had kind of a unique relationship with the U.S. government among other among airlines in general.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The founder of Pan Am, Juan Tripp, uh, from the beginning of, of when he founded the airline, he, he really conceived of Pan Am as being what he called the chosen instrument to implement the national interest abroad. Um, so other other countries uh, outside of the U.S. have what's called a flag carrier, which is a, an airline that's associated with the government, supported by the government, and that, that, um, that really can be counted on uh, to, to help the government to step in in these times of national distress or need. Um, and the U.S. doesn't have that. So uh, Pan Am really was that um, that unofficial flag carrier for the U.S. government throughout much of the 20th century
1: which I think would probably instill in the people working for Pan Am, especially the women who were the face of Pan Am for many of the passengers, I would guess that it instilled some sort of pride. Did you get that sense from them?
2: Yeah, it instilled a huge amount of pride in them. Um, They they were really, still are incredibly proud to have been associated with pan am that they talk about the airline uh, with a level of fondness that i've never in my life heard anyone talk about a corporation with um and and i think it it, it was really incredible a lot of it uh, to me was because of that sense of um a mission that was much greater than merely the profits of of an airline. Um, They were much more um, committed to their jobs, I think, because of that. They were also in some ways a lot more ambivalent about it because um, some of them really didn't care to be representing the U.S. uh, in in that that way. and yet they were really excited to be uh, taking advantage of what Pan Am was offering them, which was a ticket to the world and the ability to explore and, and, and get to know different places and, and different cultures and see different things and um, really experience life in a profoundly different way than, than the way that their mothers inhabited the world.
1: Well, I think you were going to read a little bit that that gives our audience a, an example of, of how, that, how you address that in the book.
2: Sure, yeah. So this is from the first chapter of the book. Um, One of the things that I I noticed as I was conducting my interviews um, was that almost all of the women that I talked to, their parents um, had been initially very chagrined to learn that their daughters wanted to be uh, stewardesses. Uh, Many of them said, I did not send you to college just to serve other people. Um, And yet the job itself, um, as I found later, Uh, attracted an incredibly elite group of women who, um, on Pan Am at least, in an era in which only 6% of American women graduated from college. This group of people had um, a full 10% of Pan Am stewardesses had gone to graduate school. So um, I had to back up quite a bit to understand exactly why um, these very qualified women were so excited to work on Pan Am. Um, And what I found was, uh, was this. Working as a stewardess gave a woman the ability to see varied places and also experience who she could be against those different backdrops. This invitation to try out an unfettered version of oneself somewhere else had appealed to enormous numbers of women from the start of the commercial airline industry. Sadie in New York read a 1936 profile in the Chicago Sunday Tribune of a stewardess who had beaten out hundreds of other women for a spot on the United Shuttle. Is a very different person from Sadie in Chicago. In Chicago, Sadie Erickson lived a life of considerable dash, biking, swimming, roller skating, and shopping. But twice a week, her job took her to New York, and New York Sadie was a different sort of woman. As soon as she arrived there, she bought two books, one fiction and one nonfiction, and a supply of magazines. She stocked her hotel room with a pound of chocolates and a half a dozen apples, and she had her meals sent up as she read, stretched across the hotel room bed in her dressing gown. A decade earlier, When air travel was raw and new, cabin attendants and the established model of train stewards had been men. But in 1930, a trained nurse and pilot approached an airline executive to convince him that nurses would make better cabin crew. The pitch worked. A nurse could more easily reassure a fearful passenger, the executive wrote in a memo, or minister to airsick men. The passengers relax, reported an Atlantic Monthly writer. If a mere girl isn't worried, why should they be? In the mid 1930s, A stewardess had dragged two passengers from the burning wreckage of a Pennsylvania crash that killed 12. Though she was injured herself, she ran four miles for help. Front page articles celebrated her as a heroine. Profiles of other women and their crews, friendships, and habits appeared across newspapers and magazines. Air hostess finds life adventurous, read one front page headline in the New York Times. Indeed, Sadie Erickson was a model of the duality expected of stewardesses. She had social skills and self-determination, glamour and grit. The petite blonde looked like a captivating French doll and was almost magically endowed by looks, temperament, and education to be outstanding in a profession that required poise and fearless capacity for action and grim courage.
1: Thank you. That was great. (laughs) You know, hearing you read that reminds me again of reading the book, I was just so struck by... The sort of almost incongruity of these women who were, as you said, held to very strict standards when it came to their their height, their weight, their uniforms, their marital status. But at the same time, they were using this as a platform to go realize their individuality.
2: Yeah, I, I found that so interesting. And I think that's a lot of why so many of these women still have this profound allegiance to Pan Am as a, as a, a corporation or as an entity, because it really enabled them to, to discover parts of themselves and, and, and to, to form their identity um, in a way, again, that was really unlike, it was unusual for its own era, but it was revolutionary um, compared to the past.
1: Well, your book came out during the pandemic um, when air travel was shut down completely for a few months. I wonder if you heard from the stewardesses in your book about that and what they were thinking at the time.
2: Yeah, I I heard there was a lot of chatter about um, just how frustrated everyone was to be stuck in place. This is a group of women who still to this day are incredibly, they're voracious travelers. They're incredible travelers. They, 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 They do. They're really inspiring women.
1: Well, we have some questions coming in from the audience, so I'd like to give uh, them a chance to have their questions heard. Um, One audience member asks, do you see a connection between the stewardess's education and their appetite for travel?
2: Absolutely. Yes, um, I think these were women who, who's, who had really lively imaginations. Again, this, this insatiability, both um, in terms of people, the people people, they um, enjoyed learning about people and talking to their passengers and, and finding out about different places while they were on the ground um, in the same way that I think that curiosity matters um, in, in an intellectual setting as well.
1: What would the women you interviewed think of what flight attendants have to confront these days?
2: I think they're aware of just how hard it is. Um, it's interesting because a lot of the the same, I saw similar complaints then and now. Um, there's a, a passage in, in the book about, Uh, This this woman who who was fighting against the really um, sexist uh, advertising and messaging of that era, which is not the case anymore, but she said, um, you know, I, I don't see myself as a sex symbol or a waitress. I see myself as someone who knows how to open the door of a 747 upside down, underwater, in the dark, in the air, wherever. And I think that that is uh, still the case that people see these people, people see flight attendants um, really frequently as, as customer service representatives or you know, wanting them to do their bidding in the air when in reality, they forget that these are safety professionals who are very highly trained and, and you know, expected to really keep their eye out for anything that can go wrong in the air, which is a lot of things.
1: Yeah, there's a passage in the book in which you detail what they have to do in their training and it was really quite remarkable.
2: It's, it was incredibly rigorous, and I think it still is.
1: What do you hope readers take away from your book? I hope they take
2: away two things. Um, number one, a, a higher level of respect for, for Cabin Crew in general. Um, and number two, you know, I, I think that... Uh, one of the, the reasons why I wrote this book was that as I met these women, uh, those very first women that I had met at the TWA terminal, uh, I, I had this instinct that these women had more to do with the freedoms that I enjoy today um, as a, a, a woman traveling around the world by myself often um, uh, than I think they had been given credit, credit for. And and the more I researched the book and, and wrote it, the more I concluded that that was true, That that they were the first group of women Uh, international stewardesses on Pan Am, but also domestic stewardesses anywhere um, who were traveling with a sense of purpose um, as women, either alone or in groups of women, no men around for the most part, uh, throughout the 60s until the 70s, when that changed, but anyway, um, (laughs) they were the first group of women to really travel so profoundly um, engaged in the world uh, alone as women. And I think that that was a, a really, Um, a stepping stone that hasn't really been contextualized and in the proper way
0: yet. In the second half of our show, we feature a conversation with Lauren Groff. The author of six books of fiction, Groff arguably first rose to national recognition with her novel Fates and Furies, published in 2015. She joined us from Florida for a 2021 Portland Book Festival virtual event broadcast from Annie Bloom's books here in Portland to talk about her novel, Matrix, which had just been published. Graf and I talked about writing a novel that was a significant departure from her previous work, part historical fiction and part magic realism, and what motivated her to create a story entirely populated by female characters with a plot that could perhaps be best described as feminist revisionist history. Matrix struck me as a totally different book and also very, very similar in totally different ways. But I really just want to say I so admire when writers take huge risks like I think you've taken with this book. It totally paid off but um, it is a big change. It's medieval, I think your first time talking about and dramatizing the world of medieval England. It's about uh, Marie de France, uh, I think the first woman ever be published in French that we are aware of, a poet. Um, but it's also unusual because it's a book about a person who once lived, but we also all know almost nothing about that person. And so in a way you invented a biography, which is very different than some historical fiction. I wonder if you could just talk about the origins of the novel and maybe also in contrast to some of your other work and what was that like for you and where did it all come from?
3: All of my novels come out of just this swirl of confusion <laughs> um, and they, they basically tend to take like 20 years to come to fruition. So uh, I fell in love with the work of Marie de France who was, as you said, a real poet uh, back in college. I'm a hyper introvert. I don't know if you've ever met an introvert quite as introverted as me and i i can't i couldn't take classes of more than six people or else i would start to have like anxiety attacks so i would go to all my professors and just be like can i please just have a tutorial and I, a few of them said absolutely so i had this year-long tutorial in medieval french which you know exploded my brain i loved it so much and i uh, i discovered a lot of writers but in particular Marie de France. and i tried to do a translation of her lays, which are these wild, amazingly fantastical, basically short stories in poetic form. Um, and uh, the translation failed. I, I'd always wanted to do some sort of novel about uh, her, but it wasn't until I was actually in the middle of another book. I was at uh, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies. is this great place where you're, you're just sort of rushing up against people in all other academic disciplines, sculptors, Um, astrophysicists, chemists, everyone just gets together and talks all the time. And for a while I thought I was going to write you know a black hole novel like and I still want to write a novel (laughs) about black holes. Um, But it it didn't happen here. Um, But I was sitting in the audience one day when my friend Dr. Katie Pugis um, gave this amazing talk about the um, liturgies of uh, medieval nuns in an abbey. And it's just like everything that i loved about marie de france came crashing into this incredible lecture and i really sat there and i felt as though i had a secular vision and and um the book rose up and i had to write it it was the only book that i wanted to to write for the next year basically and a half
0: so that's
3: that's where the book came from and yeah it was really fun it was a fun it was it was extraordinarily fun
0: yeah yeah. Well, you can feel that in the pages, it's really alive, and, I, and, and, and there's another character, you know, Queen Eleanor, who is sort of Marie's foil, she's a role model, she's a rival, she's an inspiration, she's a, a love in a way, but she's also a, an enemy. Um, of her throughout the book, and yeah. they they sort of animate each other. And I wonder if you could talk about that relationship, where it came from, why you wanted to write about a relationship like that. I mean, it's an incredible relationship, too, in part because they're like rarely in the same room together for most of the book. I mean, they're imagining each other in a lot of a lot of the time. So could you talk about that relationship and what it does for you in the book? what you what you want from it?
3: Yeah so first of all, Eleanor Baerton is probably my favorite historical human ever i mean she's so incredible she was she was wild she was born um basically a kardashian of her time (laughs) and then she uh she she was already like rich and famous and then she she married louisette uh, of france she was the queen of france she ended up not liking her husband because he was too ecclesiastical and so she she got an annulment and left the channel and became queen of the english which you know, I mean, that's pretty astonishing. But she's also she wrote she she raised her children to um, rise up against her second husband, whom she hated, and like she's just such a badass. So I loved her. In my character Marie, who's the main character of this book, she um, takes into herself in the court of Eleanor and Henry um, these ideas of courtly romance, and courtly romance was this whole separate basically narrative structure that was happening in the Middle Ages it was it was happening within the courts and it had its own set of amazingly codified rules and some of those rules are are I think very subversive to the Catholic Church at the time. For instance, um, everything was sort of revolved around love and the beloved object was this person who, um it didn't matter if that person was married or if you were married, you could still love them. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously against the um, the commandment of adultery, right <laughs> Like like, don't do not commit adultery. Um, but there are other things that, that Marie just sort of took into herself with these the, these dictates about courtly love. And Eleanor is the person who suggested herself as this perfect idealized object uh, that Marie, always just was sort of shooting her intellect toward and kept finding herself being rejected and then um, learned from and then wanted to come close to but also wanted to, to reject herself so it was this really dynamic relationship and I always wanted it to be a dynamic relationship in the book
0: yeah I mean it's an, it's a it's incredible that pairing I, I'm not sure I'll ever forget as a reader um, and we'll be thinking about them for a long long time Uh, We're we're talking a lot about courtly love and things like that, but the novel, in my reading at least, was obviously ancient, it's the 11th century, but it also felt totally modern. And this is sort of the, I think, one of the great magic tricks of this novel and what casts you among the great American writers at work today, because I've never seen this happen quite this way in my reading. And you know, a lot of writers get bogged down in the detail of describing every detail of a a historical moment, and these books end up being 800 pages, this book is 250 pages, but never feels thin, but you sort of manage to sort of work your way through um, a very old story in a very modern way. And I think it comes down to a certain amount of language choice, which I'm fascinated about because the, the book is peppered with certain words that are older and ancient, but then full of modern language as well, and I think that's fascinating. The book has social realism and magic realism, and there's a sort of sections that are almost stream of consciousness, um, I wondered if you could just talk about the process of writing this book, because it feels at once really organic, but also there's, a, uh, there's clearly some construction here that's going on and some really careful choices. And I wonder if you could just talk about that as an artist, and that's, that, that must have been a seesaw. Maybe it wasn't, but that's how it felt to me as a reader.
3: Well, absolutely. And it was, and I, you know, I actually had to create a basically an artist poetica before I went into writing the book because I had to figure out what it was that attracted me to certain books of historical fiction and which books of historical fiction, I felt a little bit um, angry about or I disliked very intensely in the way that um, the great Henry James, he absolutely hated historical fiction so much that uh, just as an aside, Sarah Orne Jewett, once, um, after he had complimented her, the, the country appointed furs, uh, she sent him her historical fiction manuscript. And he wrote back this very, you can find this letter online and it's, it's worth looking up. But he, he wrote back and he's like, well... Historical fiction is inherently corrupt, therefore, it's a terrible thing to do. You will never be able to write uh, about the time in verisimilitude and blah, blah, blah. And so I think um, there's, there's a certain amount of, uh, what should we say, um, snobbery when it comes to writers of literary fiction, when it comes to historical fiction. And so I had to fight with that and sort of figure out what it was that I, I really loved in the historical fictions that I do love. And I looked at um, this great, great book. That I bet you the bookstore has it now tonight. It's called The Blue Flower by Penelope Fitzgerald. It's one of my favorite works of historical fiction. And she's incredibly light when it mm-hmm. comes to the, the touches of the world. She, she makes you believe very firmly that we're in this time of Novalis, but it's really like very um, delicate the way that she does it. And she does it by not overloading the reader with detail. Um, She does it by making sure that it's basically just a modern story told in a vernacular that is uh, the past vernacular. And I realized through looking back at this book that what I love about historical fiction is when you get a sense of a resonance between the moment of the past and the moment of the writing. And it doesn't have to be explicit, but they do have to be speaking over time. And in this case, in this book, it's a, a thousand years, and I wanted this this sort of back and forth sort of echoing resonance. Um, I wanted the book to ring like a, like a tuning fork in a certain way, and that only happens through the really tiny choices that you make in terms of language, in terms of dialogue, for instance. So I don't have any direct dialogue in this book, for instance, and I did that because at the time of uh, Millie de France, she would have been speaking three to like a dozen different languages. So definitely French, definitely uh, Latin, definitely English, but also different dialects within these, these fields too. And it would have been so awkward to have to sort of slide in and out and be like, well, this was in Latin and this was in English. So then I decided just to, to describe the dialogue indirectly. And, and that sort of gave the, the book a, a somewhat archaic tone without actually throwing it back into archaic language. So it was a lot of really tiny choices that you make as you're going through.
0: Yeah, no, it's an incredibly artfully done. Um, and, and it's amazing to think about those historic figures speaking all of those languages, writing in all of those languages. Um, I read somewhere that Tolstoy's War and Peace is like 35% in French and 65% in actually in <laughs> Russian when you actually read the original, because so much of it is actually rendered in the similar language. And he assumed all his readers would just be able to speak both languages and read both languages. I, I want to put meat on the bones of this question because cause I think the, the prose is so original. So I'm going to ask you to read just a page and a half, because I think it gives a wonderful flavor to, to and really help, will help our listeners and, and viewers understand kind of what we're talking about so on, if you go to page 23 which is the chap beginning of chapter uh, two i think um and just go over that page and a half um i'd love for you to read that and if, if you want to set it up a little bit go ahead if you want to just dive in also go right ahead we're just
3: diving we're yeah. just gonna do a triple backflip. okay marie descends the night stairs she feels as though she has stepped from a blazing day into a dark room She sees nothing around her but ghost fragments of the brightness of what she has lost. Bévois shoves Marie down on the bench and sits beside her. Another novice is next to Marie, and with the back of her hand she touches the back of Marie's to comfort her. Marie steals a look at this girl, who has bulging eyes and protuberant front teeth. This, she will later discover, is swan-neck, and the novice on her other side is little Ruth, whose eyes are always telling a small joke. Both will become Marie's deep friends. The shadows at the edges of the chapel change shape threateningly in Marie's fatigue. Matins, she discovers, is singing prayer. It is shivering in the cold of the night beside strangers. It seems to last forever. The taper flickers, the wind howls across the raw countryside. She feels a pain in her chest that is the pain of a fist clenching all the meat inside her. She nearly cries out from it. The numbness that had held her safe has left her. She smarts everywhere. And for a moment the chapel wavers in her eyes, and it vanishes. The queen's court hangs before her as it had been, as though she were still solidly within it. And the great hall is warm. The servants are darting fireflies in the dim as they light the candles, and as they go, the shadows are chased out by the glowing. The mastiffs and allians and greyhounds trot in, and up to her nose rises the smell of good food carried on platters to the tables. And now the nobles enter singly, and in groups, in their bright, fine clothing, the ladies' voices are low and happy, and the lutes begin to play in the corner, two voices weaving together in sad song of chivalric love. And she hears the pattern in this new thrilling kind of loving, sees an unfurling like cloth in the air. Marriage is no excuse for not loving. One who is not jealous does not love. No one can be bound by two loves. Love is always growing or diminishing. Easy attainment of love is contemptible, but impossible attainment makes it precious. On the table is a roasted swan with its neck twisted back, mutton heaps of soft white bread, a wheel of cheese, figgy pork-pies, ale and wine at intervals. And the great surprise, a gift for delight, a cockatrice made of a boar's head greened and a parsley-bake, and a roasted peacock's body, tail feathers sewn back on, and rags in its mouth soaked in camphor and aqua vitae, set alight so the monster's breathing green fire. The noise, the brightness, the colors, the warmth. And at the heart of the gathering, at the head of the table, the great love of Marie's life sits shining so bright Marie can not see the human form in all the brightness. She can only see the radiance. The moment fades. And once again, she is among the ghosts and shadows, the wind playing at the eaves of the building, and even the ancient walls of this abbey, so poor, they seem resigned to the sickness and hunger they clasp within them. Roused again, the flock goes silently up the night stairs once more to the beds gone cold. Swan Neck lets Webber limp before her off to her bed and holds Marie's hand to keep her back. She whispers in her ear that she is so glad Marie has come. Emma is useless. Good only fit for animals. Someone has to take charge.
0: Thanks be to the Virgin for delivering Marie. Wow, I was reading along uh, on the podium here. It's just such a beautiful passage. Thank you for that. Um, you. you read so you read so beautifully as well. So sort of kind of a bedtime story for everybody. Um, um, yeah. You know, the, the, <laughs> there is a way in which that you know Maria's Maria's royalty, and she is essentially cast out, and she's cast out to to eventually to be a prioress and then to run the abbey. That she has to run. And you can feel the tension in that section. She's remembering what it was like to be at royal court and now experiencing what it's like to be in the abbey. And they're obviously in high contrast. And early in the novel, we're told that Marie, uh, quote, finds the religion she was raised in had always seemed vaguely foolish to her as she's thinking about her religion. And yet here she is about to becoming, um, uh, you know, an important nun in this abbey. And, th- and there's a way in which religion and ambition play a critical role in the entire structure of the novel and are actually related. There's another quote I'll read, and then I'm gonna ask you a question, but it's, uh, for it is a deep human truth that most souls upon the earth are not at ease unless they find themselves safe in the hands of a force greater than themselves. I wondered if you could talk about the relationship between uh, religion and ambition within Marie in this novel, which strikes me as a sort of transformation um, in in a really interesting way.
3: Yeah, I think it is. I think she doesn't have ambition when she comes to Abbey, or her only ambition is to get out of the Abbey. Uh, and her her great um, talent in writing occurs when she's she's trying to, to sort of maneuver her way out. And then as she comes to realize she's stuck there and she really has to make a life there, she begins to... Um, See the way that she can gain power for herself within this place and within the world at large by using this place and by using her her authority and her intelligence and her um, many spies. And at first, as you said, she is not religious whatsoever. But it's really through seeing herself as making of her own body and her own. Um, authority, a separate church for these, these nuns, these women, some of whom who have actual vocations, uh, unlike Marie at the beginning, it, it, it almost folds in on herself, her, her religiosity. It becomes um, something that through, time, she, through her time and through her absolute adoration of these women that she's she protecting, she starts to see God, and she starts to understand what it, it means to um, see God, and it's only through this these loving connections. So the ambition grows just as her love grows. The love grows just as her understanding of God grows, and it's all intermixed, and everything starts to get larger and larger and larger. So that was one of the, um, the big challenges of on my behalf as a writer. I was trying to give the book the impression of ever increasing largeness like like a balloon just ever ever so slightly growing every single word right and that's what i wanted it to do in multiple realms
0: Mm. that's so beautifully said and you you mentioned the word spies which i just can't leave out there hanging because it's kind of a really one of the things that i loved about this book (laughs) and i think a lot of our readers would love it if they haven't already read it is and in some ways this is a novel in which characters are deeply affected by the stories that they hear. They're not just affected, they actually changes the trajectory of their lives. And I think about the idea that there's biblical stories and visions, there are rumors, true and false. There are legends, there are planted stories that are designed to throw people off a certain path. Um, There are important letters in this. There are reports of spies who Marie seems to be able to cultivate all over Europe, I guess, and who bring her news of, of Eleanor and others. Did you think a lot about that in writing in the novel? This is sort of a a, a book about storytelling in a way, not in a, a, um, it's not, it doesn't circle in on itself. And I wanna be careful to say that because I think it's an expansive novel, but there is a way in which stories here are critical to the characters themselves.
3: This book, because it is a book by me, is, uh, is enchanted with narrative and different kinds of narrative and the way that narrative slides and the way that um, these collisions create a uh,
0: character, I think. Yeah. Wow, you gave me a lot to think about. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that, I mean, uh, it's fascinating to hear you talk about it. And, you know, lest it, uh, people think it's all highfalutin or something, you know, the physicalness of this book, and it comes through in that passage is so present throughout. And it comes through in the sort of descriptions of these, the food platters that you read, but it also comes through in the sort of just the brutality of like the 11th century. And I don't mean necessarily humans being violent to each other, though that occurs, but just the da- sheer danger of living, like the, the one accident like on the farm that could just end your life. Like the lack of modern medical care, the brutality of the natural world. I mean, a rotten tooth could be a death sentence, you know, in the wrong situation. Um, mm-hmm. And it, th- that really comes through, and I think that's what it gives the book such a h- sort of human quality and really roots the story in a really beautiful way. That's a totally different world than I think we occupy you and I maybe, and I wonder how you got to really understanding what that was like, what that experience was like to live there in such specific and clear and such relatable ways i guess well
3: so i um I think I'm from a family of animals <laughs> most people are not animals I, we are we're um we're all people who need a huge amount of exercise every single day, or else we become just like like the dog that bites off all of its own fur. That's what we become if we don't get exercise. Um, and I and the, I think we are all um, the way that we think is through the body. I mean, the somatic uh, input is our first layer um, in the world, and it's the it's the way that my people my family, we think, and we're able to sort of interact with the world that way. So it's not something that is uh, far from my understanding of the world. It's um, like being an animal in the world. I wanted very much for Marie to be large, like a large animal in the world. The, The way that she reacts is through her body. The way that she understands things is through her body first. And one of the reasons why is because I do not know what it's like to live in the 12th century, right? The 13th century. I only know from my copious research uh, a lot of the abstract things. But the way to make something abstract is to turn it back into the body and to try to understand it through the body ourselves as we're as we're then translating that in, back into abstraction in words, right? So it's a it's a constant process of transfiguration out of the abstract into the concrete back into the abstract um so what i what i wanted to do is to just found everything in this book Mm -hmm. in the body so all of the ideas come come out of marie's interaction with like like extreme cold or um menopause has a very large Um, aspect in this book and it has a very large spiritual aspect in this book too and it's because it's really really important that everything filters in um, corporeally Uh, so and that's how I, I learned to know how to write about the 12th century is through founding things in in tactile understanding that I already had right so I don't know what it's like to be someone with a, a tooth decay so bad that you might die from it. But I do know what it's like um, to have pain and to solve that pain with honey, right? So so I understand what that that is like. I understand what it's like to hold a bowl of gruel, even if I don't exactly know what the taste of that gruel is. So um, it's, it's a way of not cheating, but it's a way of really um, focusing all of my work in the concrete, in the very, very real before then abstracting it out again, it's words.
0: And it's just a profound act of imagination, right? Just doing that over and over and over again. It's so incredible. And it's partly what makes the novel feel kind of like a magic trick in the best possible way. Um, It doesn't feel forced or devised (laughs) or kind of structured um, at all. It feels really organic. We've got about five minutes to go. And um, so I want to get to some audience questions. (laughs) As a self-diagnosed introvert, how do you handle big book festivals and readings? As a prolific writer, um, you must be doing yeah, a lot no, of them too, I, I think, right?
3: I, yes, and I love them. And so so here's, the, here's the thing. I think you're an extrovert because you wouldn't have asked this question. Um, but <laughs> introverts can do it, right? We are so able to do it. We can turn on the charm, but here's the deal. Afterwards, we go to our beds and we like cry and eat M and M's and watch the Real Housewives, right? Like, like afterwards, you just need decompression time away from other humans in order to rebuild that energy and that strength. It just takes so much out of you. So yes, it's hard. And I've been on the road basically for two months at this point. I'm very tired. Like my. Spirits, my soul is in tatters. I can't wait to just spend like three weeks in a bathtub crying, um, and it'll happen someday. Um, but I do, I really, I miss people. Our job is so lonely. I don't teach, uh, so I don't get that interaction with students. And so this is the time that I get to actually see people, like get to sit down with them and drink wine. So I absolutely adore this. Uh, it's going to knock me out for six months, uh, but I'm very happy to do it.
0: <laughs> well, you're, you're being extremely giving, so I am grateful for that. So, somebody asked which character, and this is I'm going to assume refers to the Matrix, if any, um, is within you the most.
3: Oh well, yes. So this, um no, uh, my second novel is called Arcadia, and it has a character in it named Bit, and he's a A very small man and bit came out of my um, anxiety about bringing children into a world full of climate change, into the Anthropocene. And I was having a very hard time squaring that moral decision with this actual physical human being who came swallowing and angry into the world. And so I tried to envision my baby, who at that point wasn't even born yet, as a, as an adult. I, I almost said as a human, as, a, as like a, a speaking, <laughs> thinking, talking human as a child, and then later as an adult. And he's so tender and he's so vulnerable, possibly because I was feeling uh, the baby at the time so tender and so vulnerable in my womb, that a bit is the one who is absolutely the closest to me. And he's the one that I, um, I worry about still, which is so, I know, I know I invented him, but I still <laughs> worry about him. I don't, I don't know if he's okay. I think the pandemic really hurt him. <laughs> oh, I wish I, I wish I knew.
0: There are moments when the narrator in Matrix notes, environmental destruction, um, even of some of the nuns work. And there is this sort of, you know, almost what I would call telescoping between, you know, you, the, very, the very oldest parts of the Booker and the Crusades and the very most modern parts just seem to surface for a second in the 21st century. Not totally, but it's certainly from an idea and language perspective. Could you just talk about what that what that arc is a little bit for you and, and, and the environmental piece of it?
3: Yeah, well, so this goes back to what we were saying earlier about um, historical fiction having to be something that it, it's, speaks in two voices, It's like one of those throat singers. Um, and I think that it's, it, was, it was deeply important to me to think about ideas about how um, hierarchies, how structures, the structures into which we are born, um, like the churches, uh, especially the, the hegemonic churches of the Middle Ages, how they did contribute very profoundly to the way that man interacts with nature. And as a person who's deeply worried uh, and morally very deeply uh, disturbed by by climate change, what we're doing is, um, we're doing the opposite of entertainment. Even though our work could be entertaining, what we're not doing is we're not distracting people from the urgencies of the moment. And I think, If we are not as novelists engaging with climate change, we are engaging in distraction.
0: That was Julia Cook and Lauren Groff for the 2021 Portland Book Festival. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Krista Ligori and Donald Orr for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. And I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor. And this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.